I have a friend who lives in Denver, and he recently graduated from Denver Seminary. Uh, this guy has a great personality. He's very intelligent. He loves Jesus, and uh, he's planning a church in Denver with another pastor. Um, my friend grew up in a Christian home. He attended a Christian college. I think he went to Moody, and uh, he found there a wonderful wife who, who loved the Lord, and, and God has blessed them with two children. <clears throat> and about seven months ago, their second child was born, a cute little guy named Oliver. And when Oliver was born, uh, his parents held him in their arms and beamed with pride. Uh, you could see it in their faces and the pictures on, on Facebook. And um, after several hours holding this little guy and looking at him and staring at him, uh, <clears throat> they noticed that his eyes weren't quite right. And his eyes were not, the center of the eyes were not black or a color. They were milky colored, yeah, kind of cloudy. So over the next few days while they are in the hospital, they had all sorts of do tests done by all sorts of doctors. And, and eventually the doctors uh, told them that little Oliver was blind. And... Many of you know what it feels like when the doctor tells you that something isn't right with, with your baby, and you know how heartbreaking that is. Um, it's not how things are supposed to go. It's, it's part of this reality, this tragic reality of living in a fallen world where, that is groaning to be recreated by Jesus. It's, it hasn't been recreated by Jesus yet. It will be, but we're not there yet. And, and so it's natural to ask, why does God allow things like this to happen to good people who are actually devoting their lives to serving the Lord? Um, the past few weeks, we've been reading about a situation kind of like this on a certain day in Jesus' life when he was walking with the disciples around the streets of Jerusalem. They came across this guy who had been blind from birth, and the disciples say, teacher, Jesus, well, uh, why is this man blind? What did he do? What did his parents do? To, why is he punished this way? And, and Jesus said, he's not being punished. His parents aren't being punished for something bad that they did. This man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus spit on the ground, <clears throat> and he made some mud out of the spit and the dirt, and he wiped it on the blind man's eyes, and he said, go to the pool of Siloam, which was a nearby pool, and, and rinse yourself. And so the man obeyed Jesus, and he went to the pool and rinsed himself, and then suddenly his eyes opened, and he could see for the very first time. He could see the light for the very first time. He could see shapes and images and colors for the first time. And he ran back to his family and his neighbors, and he could see them. And <clears throat> it says in the passage that his transformation was so amazing that everyone was trying to figure out, is this even the same guy? And they were arguing about this. This, this, can't, even, this can't be the same guy. And in the passage we're going to look at today, we're going to see how the Jewish leaders responded to this miracle. And, and then we're also going to see what it looks like to stand up for Jesus, even when you're the only one standing. Okay? If you've got your word with you, your Bible, open up uh, with me to John 9. <clears throat> we're going to be in verses 13 to 34. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Dear Lord Jesus, as we open up your word now, um, 
We thank you for giving it to us. We thank you for putting it in our language so that we can read it. And we ask you to help us uh, as it enters our mind, help it to permeate our hearts and to work itself out in our life. Um, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work powerfully in this room now in our hearts and among us. And please bind and keep away any evil forces that would want to distract us or attack us now. And we pray this in the victorious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> so let's start by looking at John 9, verses 13 to 17. We're going to kind of go bit by bit today. Uh, it says, they brought to the Pharisees the man. So his friends, his neighbors, brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. So verse 13 says that the blind man's neighbors... Um, are so amazed by this healing, they take him to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, remember, were one of the, the main religious uh, groups of leaders of the Jewish people. Uh, we've already read about Jesus' encounter, several of them with the uh, Pharisees so far. And what we've learned is that the Pharisees really don't like him. They've tried to get their hands on him several times. They want him dead. Uh, they believe he's, Jesus is a heretical teacher and they're trying, they want to catch him doing something wrong so that they can have him judged and killed. Notice here, though, that in this passage today, Jesus isn't in this passage, in this passage physically. It's just the healed man, uh, his neighbors, <clears throat> and the Pharisees so far. Now, verse 14, John points out an important detail, okay, that Jesus healed the blind man on the Sabbath, so the Sabbath was the one day of the week that the Jews uh, set apart to focus on worshiping God as a family. They refrained from any type of work. And so keeping the Sabbath is actually in the Ten Commandments. It's grounded and rooted in the story of creation itself, that God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. Not because God needs rest, but because he was creating and modeling for us the rhythm of what life looks like for us. That there is a day set apart where we say, God, I'm not in control, you're God. And no matter what I did or didn't get accomplished those other six days, what matters on this day is that I pause and say, you are God. And that I point my family to God. And that as a church family, I gather and, and worship with my church family um, this day. Now, um, unfortunately, by the time Jesus lived on earth, which was thousands of years after the Sabbath had been put into place, uh, the Sabbath was, had become a day that was not restful at all for people. Over the centuries, the Jewish leaders had created hundreds of laws that they wrote, which said, well, if we're supposed to create the Sabbath, then let's write down lots and lots and lots of ways of what it means not to work on the Sabbath. And then they said, okay, we got our rules, now let's make everybody follow them. 
And so instead of being a relaxing day of worship, the Sabbath turned into this day where everybody was kind of stressed out, and it was a strict day when everyone was keeping a close eye on themselves, and they were keeping a close eye on everybody else to make sure everyone else is following the rules too. And one of the things that Jesus took the most heat for during his earthly ministry was for not following the Sabbath according to their rules. And everybody who followed Jesus took heat too. And today's passage is one example of that. Um, after John says that it was the Sabbath, that it was on the Sabbath this man was healed. Okay, what well, you'll see at the beginning of verse 15 is the word so. So it's saying it was the Sabbath, so here's how the Pharisees responded. Okay, so verse 15 says, So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on, his, on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Now, what's fascinating here is that none of the Pharisees express any joy for the blind man. They would have seen this guy around too, right? He, he could see for the first time ever, and the Pharisees only care about the fact that he broke the rules. That's their first, he broke the rules. And the man who healed him broke the rules. And in the Pharisees' eyes, Jesus broke the Sabbath in probably at least two to three different ways. Um, first, they had a rule that you could not knead on the Sabbath, like as a kneading dough. And so by making mud, that was, could have been considered kneading. Right? If you take that to its, to its logical conclusion, I guess if you take it you know, to, to make it really concrete, they, well, you technically needed some mud, and you put that on this guy's eyes. Right? So you broke the Sabbath. They also had a rule against healing anybody on the Sabbath unless it was a, uh, an emergency situation. And since this man had been born blind, then obviously in their eyes this wasn't an emergency. How dare Jesus heal this man on the Sabbath? And then there may have also been a rule about uh, forbidding saliva from entering the eyes. And so if that happened, then Jesus was obviously guilty of that. Now, keep in mind, none of these rules are in the Bible. Okay? They're simply rules made by humans in, attempt, in an attempt to help people follow the Bible correctly in their own opinion. Now, time and time again, what we see is Jesus break these man-made rules in order to show them what it really looks like to worship God on the Sabbath. So when we first read about these rules, rules like this, and they, if you've, there are, I'm sure you can read them online. There was hundreds of rules. Um, it's easy to think, man, that sounds crazy. This sounds ridiculous. But what I want us to consider is I want us to look at our own lives and consider that perhaps we're guilty of doing the exact same thing in ways that we may not even be aware. See, there were at least two main errors that the Pharisees were guilty of doing and which we might be guilty of doing. One error was giving their man-made rules the same authority as God's word. Okay? So they might, now this is the thing, they might say that their man-made laws, of course, are not on the same par as Scripture. But when it comes down to day-to-day -day life, what they showed was that they treasured their own laws, their own rules, 
more or as much as God's word. Now, the other error that the Pharisees made was essentially by trusting in salvation by human works, by trusting that God accepts me because of what I do for him. So they created this way essentially for God to, to earn God's acceptance, to keep God's acceptance if they just followed the rules that they had created. And the sad thing is that by making these rules, by trying to follow all these rules, by putting all these rules on the people, many of the Pharisees' love for God diminished And they led themselves astray by believing that God loved them because they were the best rule followers, right? That's what they believed. God loves me. I'm I'm the rule follower. Well, probably the most important lesson we can learn about the Pharisees as we read about them in scriptures is that we don't want to be like them, (laughs) So let's bring it closer to home then. What does that look like? Let's talk about three ways that we can avoid being like the Pharisees. Well, first, as a church family, we must never give man-made rules the same authority as God's word. Ever. For hundreds of years before Jesus came, the Jews were subject to all these man-made rules And then Jesus came to earth. He taught them how to truly obey God's word. So the reset button was kind of pushed for a little bit. But after Jesus ascended back to heaven, it didn't take long for Christians to start putting more rules in place for everybody to follow. When Christianity was adopted by the Roman Empire as its official religion in the 4th century, things got even messier because now people could be legally punished for not following Jesus for not following the religious rules, too, that people had added. And so over the next thousand years, mid to the mid-1500s, things got really corrupt um, in the Roman Catholic Church. They began to sell tickets to people to get out of suffering eternally. They began to tell people that your baby is condemned to hell if your baby is not baptized. They began to um, um, persecute people for reading the word. So if you, so the story, I mean, we read about all sorts of people, uh, the reformers who were killed and burned at the stake for translating God's word into English. Now, as a church, what this means for us is this. We must hold God's word high above every human tradition or rule. Amen? Okay? So that means as a church, for us now, going in the future, if our policies as a church or our traditions that we treasure ever conflict with God's word, then we must reject those things or change them, right? Because Cedar Homes policies, Cedar Homes programs don't, uh, w- they, they exist to serve the church. The church doesn't exist to serve the policies and programs, right? The Sabbath exists to serve man. Man doesn't exist to serve the Sabbath. That's what the Pharisees got wrong, 
the only thing that's set in stone for us as a church is the authority of God's word and all of our core beliefs that derive from God's word. That's what's set in stone. So as a church, we've, we must value God's word as the supreme authority of our life together. Otherwise, it's going to get messy. Now, secondly, as individual Christians, okay, as individuals, we must never give man-made rules the same authority as God's word in our individual lives. Pharisees love rules, regulations, and rituals, okay? Because following rules is more appealing to people than trusting God. Because for one, it's more tangible. It gives people the illusion that they are in control of saving themselves. And secondly, following rules doesn't require people to actually deal with their sin. It doesn't require them to love God with their hearts. Instead, they fool themselves into thinking, if I could just jump through the hoops and do the right things, then God has to love me. He has to accept me, right? So as you follow Jesus, be careful not to add your own rules by which you judge God's love for you and for others. See, God wants us to read the Bible, but he doesn't stop loving you if you don't read the Bible for a season, okay? You're not helping yourself out at all by not reading the Bible, but God doesn't abandon you. God wants you to be holy like he is holy, but he doesn't give up on you and me when we mess up, thankfully, God wants you to be pure like he is pure. He, he wants you to be careful um, at the same time um, not to hold yourself and other people according to the standards that you made up. See, be careful not to tell yourself that you have a pure heart because you listen to this music but not that music. And you are pure because you've seen these movies but not those movies. And you're pure because you've gone to these places, but not those places. You wear this clothes, but not this clothes. You hang out with these people, but not those people. See, God isn't interested in that. God wants your heart. God wants your heart. Works are way easier than faith. (laughs) God wants faith. God wants your heart. Give God your heart. Offer your whole life to God as a living sacrifice Read the word to see what that looks like, and then he will transform you from the inside out. That's how it works. It doesn't start with behavior modification. It starts with your heart. The third way to avoid being a Pharisee is to believe that, <clears throat> believe that God accepts you and saves you by grace alone through faith alone. Okay? Believe that. So whether you're a follower of Jesus or not today, this point is important for you to understand that we have a friendship with God. Um, The way to, to do that, the way to go to heaven, to be with God when you die, is by trusting in Jesus to save you. Jesus does not say, if you want me to love you, if you want me to accept you, then do this and this and this and this and this and this and this. Okay? Jesus says, repent and believe. That has to do with your, your, your mind and your heart. 
Repent means change your mind about how you see things. Look at your sin and see it as sin and as trash that you don't want anymore. Repent and believe. Turn to Jesus and believe that he is God. Repent and believe. Trust in me to save you, and I will. You're saved by faith alone in Jesus because of God's grace alone. See, you can't make God love you. You can't make God want to love you or want to save you. God loves you because he is love. <laughs> he is loving. He shows his grace to you because he is gracious. And part of salvation is realizing that you can do nothing to save yourself. That's an important step. God uses like, man, I tried everything. And I can't do it. I can't get rid of this sin thing. Like it keeps, I can't escape it on my own. Part of it is realizing, man, I can't do this my, myself. Only Jesus can save me. And so then as a result, for the rest of our days, we praise Jesus for his grace. And we praise Jesus that he now gives us this rest. Which we couldn't have in ourselves because we'd be working forever to try to get him to love us. But now, because of what Jesus has worked for us on the cross and in his resurrection, we can rest and run after him. <clears throat> I don't know where you're at with God today. I don't know what your game plan is for death and for when you meet God on the other side. I don't know if you've ever asked God to save you and to forgive you of the sin and guilt that's on your conscience right now. But you can have life with God right now in Jesus Christ. You can pray to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. I am in deep, deep, deep trouble without you. So please don't make me wait until I die to be saved, but save me today and give me the assurance that I'm saved Please forgive me. I trust that you took on the cross all this ugliness and you killed it on the cross for me because you love me. And I don't have to worry about that junk anymore. And I'm saved in you. And now I can follow you. My life isn't mine anymore. It's yours. Do that today. If you need help doing that, talk to me after the service, please. If you already are a Christian, then you and I need to come back to this message every day. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day because everything in our world, everything in our mind says, you're not good enough. You didn't do enough. You need to do more to get God to keep loving you. What we need to remember is that Jesus saved me and my faith is in him and it's because of God's grace. And when we do that, man, it fuels our adoration for God says, what a God is this? There's nobody like him. And at the same time, it fuels us to run after him. Man, I will, it fuels us to be sanctified, to be like Jesus. I read an awesome quote by Spurgeon yesterday that said, I better, I mean, I, I might get it wrong here, but I'll say, I cannot trifle with the evil that slew my best friend. I cannot play around with the evil that killed my best friend on the cross. 
That's my approach towards sin now. I don't want it. I struggle with it, and you struggle with it. But this isn't a game. This is the sin that hung our best friend on the cross. And so I want to chase after Jesus for what he did for me. These are three ways you can avoid becoming Pharisees. First, as a church family, we must never give man-made rules the same authority as the Bible, right? They're, they're, they're to assist us. Secondly, um, as individual Christians, we must never give man-made rules the same authority in our own lives. And a lot of those are self-imposed. And then third, we must believe that God accepts us and saves us by his grace alone, through faith alone. So the Pharisees, uh, they're, they're all worked up about this, right? They hear Jesus broke our rules again, okay? Yeah, but they refused to believe that Jesus had actually healed this man. And then you see this word in the text which says, until. That's in verse 18. They refused to believe it until they invited his parents to talk to them. They invited his parents to talk to them. Verse 18 says, The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Okay. So the blind man's parents are likely experience a whole lot of different emotions, right? Of course, I mean, they're elated. Their son is seen for the first time ever, something they never thought would happen. And at the same time, they have to put a lid on all of this excitement because they knew that the Pharisees were angry about it. And the Pharisees were angry about Jesus, and they were scared of the Pharisees. Verse 22 says that the Pharisees had already written up another rule that if anybody confessed Jesus to be the Christ, then they'll be put out of the synagogue. Okay? So being put out of the synagogue was what we as New Testament Christians call excommunication. Okay. For the Jewish people, it meant that they could no longer go to the temple, which was the center of city life. Uh, it meant that they could no longer interact with others in the Jewish community. They could no longer worship God with the people. They could no longer participate in the Jewish ceremonies and festivals. So for the Jewish person, being put out of the synagogue was one of the very worst things that could possibly happen to you. So the blind man's parents keep their lips shut. They say as little as possible, I don't think they lie. I don't think they reveal everything, but I don't think they lie. Uh, they say as little as possible without lying. Instead of answering many questions, uh, they point the Pharisees back to their son and tell them to talk to him instead. Now, who knows if they lied or not? I, that's, that's in God's hand. But um, what we read in verses 24 to 23 is that they point back to the son, and so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, which means tell the truth. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, 
What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. I don't know if you've ever been in the hot seat where you've had to testify or had the opportunity to testify about faith in Jesus when you had a lot to lose. It's inspiring to read this man's testimony here. Uh, It's not even clear. I mean, I was trying to figure out this, this week. It's not clear for sure whether the man had even actually ever entered the temple before. Because there are some Old Testament passages that say priests can't be blind. And so if that applied to the priest, then certainly it applied to the rest of the people. That's not clear for sure. We don't know. But it's not unlikely that this might have been the first, the first time the guy had come into the temple. And this isn't a great interaction on his first time in, if that's true, right? At this, at this point, the guy doesn't confess that Jesus is the Messiah because he honestly doesn't know that. But he does testify about Jesus. And he's bold, and he calls out the Pharisees for their unwillingness to admit what Jesus had done and and who he was. And so we read uh, from verse 18 that the Pharisees already know that Jesus healed this man, okay? They don't know how, but they do know after their conversation with the parents that, okay, Jesus did, he did do this. But they refuse to see the sign. When we talk about signs and wonders, what it means is that Jesus performed miracles that were deeper than miracles. There were signs that pointed out a deeper truth. And so the Pharisees saw the miracle, but they didn't see the sign in the miracle. They didn't see the giant blinking arrow that pointed straight to Jesus and said, this is the Son of God. Okay, They missed that. And after the Pharisees ask him again how Jesus healed him, the blind man says in verse 27, I told you already and you wouldn't listen. And then then he appears to use some sarcasm and he asks them, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And of course, it infuriates them, right? It says reviles them, meaning they, they hated this guy. They load them. They said, you are his disciple, We are disciples of Moses. Now, the ironic thing about this statement is that they took pride in being disciples of Moses, but probably most of them weren't, because the true child of God is the one who believes in Jesus. (laughs) And, And so they were full of themselves saying, well, we follow all the right rules, when in reality, they weren't really a disciple of God. The formerly blind man pushes back. He essentially says this, well... This is incredible. You don't know where Jesus is from. You don't believe he's the Christ, yet he healed me. He did for me what you couldn't do or any of the other healers 
And the man insists that Jesus, this is a sign, that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Pharisees lash back at him, and they degrade him, and they tell him that he, you were born in sin. Who are you to talk to us? And then it says they cast him out of the temple. He was excommunicated. They excommunicate him. He told the truth, and he was excommunicated. His parents concealed the truth, and they remained part of the community. So in the remainder of our time now, what I want to do is bring this home for us even more by sharing three applications from this passage related to sharing our faith and to suffering for Jesus. First, tell others how Jesus has changed your life. That's the application. Tell other people how Jesus has changed your life. That's all this man does here. He just tells the Pharisees how Jesus changed him. See, telling your story is an extremely effective form of evangelism. It's more than simply saying Jesus is God. It's more than simply putting a sign out front that says Jesus died and rose again. Those are important. That is the gospel message. But it's showing people how that changed you. Okay. Telling others your story, your testimony about how Jesus has changed your life means that you have to open up, you get vulnerable with another person, and you tell them how Jesus has changed you. And when you do this, it makes the gospel very concrete. Okay. The concrete is uh, the uh, sorry. The gospel is no longer this abstract message that's kind of floating around that people have heard their whole life. Instead, when you start telling people about Jesus and how He broke into your life and how He changed you and about what He means to you right now, that changes the whole ball game. See, telling others, uh, well, the, the beauty of telling your story to others is this. Nobody can deny your story. It's your story. Nobody can tell you that didn't happen. That's not true. It's your experience. You can't tell me that's not, that didn't happen. It did. I am the walking testimony. <laughs> and telling your story isn't something you just do with non-Christians. Um, talk with other Christians about your story Parents, have you told your kids how Jesus saved you and how he's changing you? Grandparents, do your grandkids know your story? Do they know how Jesus has changed you and what he means to you today? Have you ever written down your story? Have you ever written down, and this is what I looked, this is what life looked like for me before God entered, or God really saved me, and this is kind of how I came to a, ahead with Jesus and how he saved me, and this is what life's looked like since that. And obviously that last portion, it's not like it's been, uh, you know, a sweet ride or really easy, right? But this is how God has helped me since, right? These are things we need to celebrate, and these are um, really powerful ways to, to share the gospel with, with others. If you're in a community group, man, take a few nights and just share your testimonies with one another, Right? And if you are a person here who has, wants to share your story in another venue at our church, let us know. We'd like to share, have you share, whether that's in church or in Sunday school or digitally or whatever. We want to celebrate what Jesus is doing in our lives and what he has done for us. Now, <clears throat> a second application for the passage is this. Expect people to make fun of you for following Jesus. That's what you expect. When it doesn't happen, you're surprised. But expect it. 
See, the formerly blind man is mocked by the Pharisees for testifying about Jesus, but it doesn't seem to phase him much because, I think this is why, because he knows it's the truth. <laughs> he knows it's the truth. Remember, Jesus was hated by the world. He was despised. He was made fun of. He was put down. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then the world will treat you the same way. It's a great privilege to be persecuted for Jesus, but it can also be agonizing. Matthew 5, 11 to 12, um, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you. Remember, that's the same word. I thought it was interesting. That's the same word that the Pharisees did to this man. They reviled him. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, teenagers. I know how hard it is to follow Jesus in middle school, in high school, in college. And your peers, your friends can be cruel and thoughtless, but I encourage you to stay strong in Jesus, okay? Stay strong in Jesus. He's with you in your school. He's with you at your sports practice. He's with you everywhere you go. You stick with Jesus, okay? I've heard about the, and I know firsthand, I mean, I haven't always had every job in the church. Um, and it's part of the reason why I like working sometimes out in other places so that I'm not always in the church. But I've heard about persecution that's taken place at Boeing. And on, if you're a fireman and if you're a policeman or a teacher or a hundred other jobs in the secular workplace, remember this, though, when people make fun of you for following Jesus. The people who mock you are lost. They are blind to Jesus and they are to be pitied. You're not better than them, but they're lost. <laughs> and you will never regret taking a stand for Jesus. You won't. You won't sit on your deathbed and say, man, I wish I wouldn't have stood up for Jesus. It's not going to happen. You'll never regret standing up for Jesus, even if it costs you everything in this world. Stay strong to your convictions. Stand up for Jesus. <clears throat> I think it's pretty obvious our society's becoming more and more hostile to biblical Christianity. Um, but we as Christians cannot waver. We can't compromise. Right? We didn't create the gospel. We didn't create the Bible. We just believe it. <laughs> we point to it. We hold it up. Jesus is the one true God of the universe. The Bible is his perfect word, and he has commanded us to love him with everything that we are. He's commanded us, he's freed us also to love other people who don't even love him. That's incredible. You don't have to hate those who don't love Jesus. Jesus has freed you to pray for your enemies and to love them and say, God, I hope that you call that one to you. A third application from this passage is expect people to reject you for following Jesus. Okay? Re expect people to reject you for following Jesus. This formerly blind man uh, in this passage was rejected by his religious leaders. He was cast out of his community for following Jesus. And likewise, when people find out 
that you are serious about following Jesus, that following Jesus isn't a Sunday Christian thing for you, that it's not just a cultural thing for you, that you don't just go to church because your parents or your grandparents did. When people find that out, then expect it to affect your relationships with others. You will be excluded from jokes and from get-togethers and from friendships. And get this, you will be excluded by people who call themselves Christians because you're serious about following Jesus. It's sad, but it's true. That's because not everybody who, who calls himself a Christian is a Christian. It's just reality. Students, you will be rejected in your high school class and in your, if you go to a state school, you will be rejected if you stand up for Jesus. I know that. I went to a state school. I got an undergraduate minor in religious studies and learned about Jesus, Jesus from Buddhists and Jews and atheists, okay? Those were my instructors. And what I found is this. Remember this. Most of your teachers, most of your professors are lost. Most of the other students in your class are followers, and they're just trying to follow what the teacher says and what the crowd says, okay? Most of them are clueless about Jesus and the Bible. I'm not saying all of them are. But what I found is most of them throw out objections to the Bible's truthfulness, these little easy one-word answer, one-phrase answers, when in reality, they haven't even read the Bible. They don't really care. What they want is an easy excuse not to look at it and not to look at Jesus, okay? And so as you put yourself in those environments, do not let those people shape your worldview. You come to me, I'll point you to some really good reasons on why if we cannot trust the historical trustworthiness of the Bible, you cannot trust any of Western history, period. You can't. Now, some of you will be rejected by your families. I have a friend in Wyoming who left the Mormon church in order to follow Jesus. She was essentially cast out of her family. She has very little contact now with her parents and siblings because she believes that Jesus saved her and that she, salvation is through faith alone by grace alone. And she stood up for it. And she considers all things lost compared to the surpassing worth of G, knowing Jesus Christ as her Lord. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're single... <clears throat> And if you want to be married someday, then do not settle for someone who does not love Jesus. There's a tremendous difference between calling yourself a Christian and actually following Jesus. Everybody's a Christian when they're in the pastor's office and they want to get married. Okay. If Jesus is the most important person in your life, then make it your first requirement that any person you'll even consider dating must love Jesus more than you. They must love Jesus more than they love you. We know dozens of Christians who could tell you firsthand how hard it has been to be married to someone who does not love Jesus. And if your boyfriend or girlfriend rejects you because you love Jesus more than them, then consider yourself blessed to part ways with them before marriage. Expect people to reject you for following Jesus. But guys, Jesus is so worth it, right? <laughs> That's the truth. He's worth it. So tell others how Jesus has changed your life. Expect people to make fun of you for following Jesus. Expect people to reject others. But celebrate Jesus is so worth it. 
and be encouraged because as we look at Jesus' life, we remember that he endured all of these things already so that we could live with him forever. He already testified about who he was and how God had sent him and he was rejected for that and he told the truth so that you and I could know the truth and be saved. Jesus was already made fun of and mocked and scorned for his words. Jesus was already rejected by the Jewish people and by the Gentiles and on the cross by God the Father so that you and I will never be rejected by God the Father if we trust in Jesus. Turn to Jesus and trust in him. Don't set your heart on the traditions and rules of men or rituals. Ask God to humble you. Ask him to thank you for saving you. How do you know if someone can't be saved? Let's talk about that. Can we talk about that right after the service? Let me talk about that. That's a good question. Um, but be filled uh, with joy, you guys. How, be filled with, with peace, knowing this. If my family rejects me, if my class rejects me, if my team rejects me, if my coworkers reject me, I am always accepted in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you, God, for uh, your word. Thank you for your truth, God. Thank you for these questions that have come up, God. We pray, Lord, that uh, for those of us who are in Christ, uh, you would encourage us to come back to this gospel message, Lord, not to look at our own rituals and rules and um, ourselves to be saved, but to look to you. God, for those who don't know you, we pray, Jesus, that you would permeate their hearts today, God, and use your word um, to call them to yourself, that they would know that you love them, God. You don't turn away people who seek you. <laughs> you don't turn away people who want you, Jesus. We thank you for that. Lord, give us a heart for you and a heart for others. Give us your heart, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.